0: Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you so for this new day. We thank you for the opportunity to learn. And we pray that we can take the things that we have learned back to our churches and to our conferences, that we can share this news, and that many will come to know and love you as a result of our work here today. We pray that you will bless our work and our association here. We ask these things in your loving name. Amen. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about one of the ways that really made me feel that gardening was important. You know, I've gardened for a number of years, not anything like Scott has done, but tomatoes, many other kinds of things. But several years ago I had the opportunity to travel to Zimbabwe. And The purpose of my trip was to teach a class at Salusi University, and on the weekends, the chief executive officer of the university, referred to as the vice chancellor, took me to several places in Zimbabwe. One of the things that really fascinated me was the houses that they lived in. And we were talking about what they looked like inside and how they lived. He said, let's stop and see if we can't go in a house. And so just a few kilometers later, we saw a lady out putting clothes on the line. And so we stopped. And he approached her and talked to her and asked permission for us to come and look at her her home. Her home actually was made up of three buildings. A kitchen area where there was a small fire in the center of the room, and the smoke would ascend and go out a small hole in the roof. There was another bedroom that was a separate building. And then the third building was a granary where she kept all of her food. As we were going through the kitchen particularly, she indicated that she was preparing her last meal. She had run out of food. There was no more maize in the granary. Her garden was depleted with the exception of one lone tomato. And so on the stove, on the fire pit, in the middle of her kitchen, were some greens and the very last grams of maize that she had. Her husband had left her. Her son had died from AIDS. Her daughter, who lived with her, had been raped several times and had two children, and so together they were preparing for their last meal. This happened to be a Sabbath morning. And we decided that we would take up an offering for the poor that morning. Enough so that they could buy several 50 kilogram, uh, 50 kilogram bags of maize so that they could eat for a few more months. But the thing that really impressed me was the garden, the opportunities that were there that were not taken advantage of. And I think that that is important for us to teach those that we are in contact with, to enable them to grow food for a lifetime and not prepare their very last meal. Her situation was because of economics, because of political problems in the country, and because of disease. We have similar problems, but not to the extent that they did. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking with you about some of the political and economic aspects of gardening that I think is very, very important. The first thing is, are you familiar with the Alma Alta International Conference? I had not been either. But this was a 1978 conference that was held in the former Soviet Union. The purpose of this international conference was to protect and promote the health of all of the people of the world. And so as a result of this, the outcome of the conference was the establishment of six goals. The eradication of extreme poverty and hunger, just as we had seen in Zimbabwe. And by the way, this lady's plight was repeated time and time and time again. Robert Mugabe, the present head and head of the country at that time, had moved many of the population from the more fertile land and moved it into the rocks and very, very um, soil that was not very good. But this was part of his political power. And that he was doing to the natives of Zimbabwe very much what we had done to the Indians and moving them off of their prime land and taking them to Oklahoma like the Seminoles. Goal number two was to achieve universal primary education. Goal number three is to promote gender equality and empower women. But number four is to reduce child mortality. And what is the one major factor in terms of child mortality? Lack of nutrition and lack of health care. And many of the problems associated with health care really reverted back to problems associated with nutrition. Goal number five was to improve maternal health. And six, to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and many of the other diseases that are found on the face of this earth. But the focus of six of those goals really had to do with children. Every child has the right to survival. Almost 11 million children die before the age of five because of a preventable cause. Second is the area of food and nutrition. 1.1 billion people on this earth live on less than $1 a day. And much of that money goes to purchase food. So that is a very sobering aspect. Survival is the third. Almost 11 million children die before age of 5 from preventable. I've already done that, yes? I'm sorry. (laughs) The fourth one is education. Over 140 million children in developing countries have never attended school. And equality and protection. We have not achieved equality in this world, and many lack this basic protection in a social, economic, physical, or political sense, even in developed countries. I think that we have major issues in this country in terms of that area. In the area of primary health care, special attention must be focused on the promotion of the food supply And and proper nutrition and an adequate supply of safe water. Very little of the water, the surface water in Africa is safe. So the work of ADRA and others in terms of going into villages and drilling wells is a major uh, positive impact in helping the health of the underprivileged in many of the villages of Africa. So to achieve these five or six goals, the coordinated effort of agriculture, husbandry, the food industry, education. We've all got to work together in order to provide an environment where the children of this world can live in a, with security and with hope for tomorrow. And so I think one of the things that we can take away from this conference today is to paraphrase the phrase that Rather than giving food to a child, we will teach the child and the family how to garden, to eat well for a lifetime. If we can do that, I think that we will have achieved, helped to achieve many of the goals of the Alma-Alta Conference. So we're talking about a serious effort, an effort to provide growing food and nourishment for the family in every space or plot of ground that is available. And so this leads us to the concept of, what can we do as a church here in North America or in inter-America to make a difference. Scott, I heard him say several times yesterday that whenever you build a church you also need to build a garden. And I think that is so important for us to be able to do that. Can we provide or at least identify land for community gardens? Can we teach the community how to garden? And can we improve the nutrition and health of our community? That is an essential thing. One of the things that we have done at Loma Linda is develop some community gardens for the Norton neighborhood, which is in the northern part of Loma Linda or the Loma Linda area. San Bernardino has probably some of the worst health outcomes of any community in the the United States. Seventy percent of the population are living on some type of public assistance. And so several in the community have gone to the Norton neighborhoods and helped to develop gardens for individuals so that they can learn to garden and that they can be independent as far as uh, supply of food is concerned. urban gardening as we've talked about in terms of a community garden is one way that we can look at it and another way that we can look at it is in terms of major urban gardening gardens and produce that does not have to come from fifteen hundred miles away but it can come from within the city and I have some pictures um, that are spread out throughout this section of urban gardens in the city of St. Louis, Missouri where Uh, Extra space has been used for gardening rather than for urban plight and all of the garbage that is there. So neighborhood gardens nurture not only food and plants, but the people and the local culture as well. So what we see happening is that in areas where individuals have been dealing drugs or they have use this area as just a garbage pit. This land has been reclaimed, and this is being used as a center of social activity for that area of the city. And painters and musicians and other artists are making their homes in these areas of the garden. Even though every member of the community may not be a gardener, the benefits of these ur- urban gardens can be felt by all of the citizens. For example, in 1991 in Seattle in an urban garden, that urban garden contributed eight tons of food to the local food bank. That's a significant amount of food. And I think that that is something that we can do in our local community. And so this is um, overlooking one of the freeways in downtown St. Louis. You can see the arch in the background. But I was impressed. This was right next to the hotel where I was staying. So it was, you know, it was not the the lower socioeconomic area of St. Louis, but um, a major hotel. But next to it was this very large garden. And I'm showing you here only a very small part of the garden. But that to me is a role model that we can play within our church to really make a difference in our community. So the gardens have built cohesiveness and brought, to, brought people together in a very positive way. This picture is in the mall area of downtown St. Louis, right in the, one of the major streets leading right down to the Mississippi River and to the uh, Gateway Arch. But um, it makes wonderful um, greenery in the area, as well as providing food for the homeless, because that is one of the things that um, is one of the goals that these gardens p- are playing in the urban setting. And so often they have been; these gardens have been built on vacant lots, which were previously used by drug dealers, by gangs, and squatters. And so when these people no longer are in the neighborhood, hopefully they have been rehabilitated, it becomes a much safer, happier, and more pleasing place in the urban environment. Another picture of just the the mall area in the center of the street. Uh, People going back both ways. And then in an area, this is just a walking street. I'm not sure that I completely agree with what I put on this slide, that it costs almost nothing to garden, but but the average plot in a community garden yields about 450 pounds of food annually, which translates for an individual family of about $470. Um, This data is just uh, a few years old, and so it probably has increased a little bit more from that. So without roots in a land or a family, many modern folks feel estranged from the basic human rights of being unsettled, rootless, and restless. People removed from relatives and seasonal fluctuations are not humbled by nature. Modern writers speak of the necessity of wildness or rituals of return to the human condition or just simply getting back to the land. I feel that, that it's wonderful just to work in the soil. I have a difficult time in passing a weed in the garden. I've got to bend down and, and pull that weed. No, don't pull them. <laughs> what you should sh- I do with them? Shave them. Shave them, leave them okay. Leave the in the ground. Yep, all right. Because that spreads the seeds?
1: Well, it leaves your carbon in the ground and you get yeah, on, on the surface. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They won't grow back. Most of them won't.
0: Yeah. The thing that I think is important is that we take the information that Scott has been sharing with us back to our church so that we can help to achieve some of the goals of this Alma-Ata Declaration that was done in 1978. In recent years, this has been replaced by millennial goals, very similar goals to what Alma-Ata had. But the, the world, world leaders, are working to try to solve some of these problems associated with poor nutrition, lack of land for gardening. And I think by working together, we can help to achieve some very important goals for this country and for this world. Thank you.
1: You know, that's a I th- well, thank you, Dr. Connell, for bringing that sort of back around. I guess with all the information, sometimes you know, I don't know what you know. I know you guys want to hear information, but it's good to hear, you know, what the potential mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, you know goals and stuff are, um, and not lose sight of that. Um, uh, I the, the comp. I mean, I, I'm tr- I'm doing a garden with the church right now. I, I, they they didn't want me to come back this year because it, it you know, it was so new to them. It, they were, it was hard for them to swallow what I was selling, you know. But uh, I think it would work. I just it didn't, it hasn't. It I gave it. They gave it two years, and it, it didn't really pan out this time because I don't know. I, I think a garden is like the law. You know, it, uh, we say the law uh, is it like a mirror it reflects your character, uh, or it reflects you know you know smudges a sinner, and you know. Well, gardens are kind of that way, too, because they're a lot of work. They take a lot of cooperation, coordination, and they take a plan. I mean, you know, and everybody's got to pick, kind of be on the same page. And if if that's not happening, it can bring out a lot of character flaws in people, you know, which it has, you know, I'm myself included. Um, and uh, I think that churches are, are kind of scared of that. They don't, you know, and so and this church decided to get rid of the garden, and I was trying to convince them keep the garden and let's get rid of the character flaws, you know. <laughs> That are causing some of the strife because it's not the garden that causes the strife, it's the people who sometimes work the garden, because it, I mean the pilgrims ran into it. I told you about that, right? All right, I have discussions out in the hall. I don't remember what I said here and out in the hall, but the pilgrims ran into that when um, they came over. You know, the model they had come from was sort of a feudalistic Europe, Europe Catholic-dominated Europe, right? And when they came over to this country. They were they were owned by the one of the British big corporations or whatever, and they didn't own the land. They just had to work it, and then they were all going to give some of the money back to the company in Britain, and then they were going to keep some of the, uh, They were going to share the rest of the money between themselves. Well, this side of sin, human nature is 20% of the people end up doing 80% of the work, and it doesn't take long for those 20% are doing the work to get kind of resentful. It just happens. It happens in churches. It happens in Adventist churches, right? And uh, the Pilgrims ran into this too. It's not something new. I'm not, I'm not browbeating you know, any specific group. It's just sort of human nature. And the Pilgrims finally said, you know what, forget the company, forget the corporation over in Britain. We're going uh, to, the, the leader of the Pilgrims says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you land title. You're going to own this land. And gave every family a piece of land. And then said, we're going to have fair trade, and free enterprise and you are going to be able to trade amongst yourselves. When they did that after three years of starvation on a sort of a communist feudalistic model they had abundance because now people could rise to their ability and rise to their talents. And I think what a lot of churches have forgotten is is that Protestantism when it came over to this country was built on reading the Bible and seeing in the Old Testament trade laws and property laws and, and, and how to do that fairly. And then you were expected to be good at what you did in your craft and be compensated for that, and not have to. You know, all you were had to tithe was a, a tithe to, uh, to the to the Levite, to the priest, and um, and then and the, really the tithe also took care of the poor and everybody else too, right? It wasn't just to the priest, and uh, so um, you know, the rest of the ninety percent. If you got, if you were good, you could give more tithe, and that tithe was bigger. But you kept the ninety percent. So, it was built. Protestantism in America was built on free enterprise and not a sort of a communal system. And I think we kind of go back and we get inside the church. You know, outside we will to say we're the last Protestants, but you know, when we get inside the church, we kind of turn communistic again. and want to live in one big, you know, kumbaya commune, and uh, and 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 really that it didn't work in Russia. I don't know. It's struggling in China, and. Uh, Cuba is, is not every. It, when you have those systems everybody has one. You know it kind of the, the, the beauty of American, you know, America is when the, it, it came over it was, the Protestants were established and they built this. It's called the Protestant American work ethic. You ever heard of it? That, that phrase Protestant America. It's called Protestant because it went into the Bible and they, they saw this property right laws. You have to do it fairly but then it lets people rise to their abilities and people get compensated for the work they do. And uh, you have to sort of remember that for anything to be kind of successful. And I think that's some of the problems when you do things inside church, because everything is just expected to be communal, you know. And I don't know if we're really teaching our kids right, or really, you know. I think we're kind of go back to a feudalistic model. That you know, I think we, you know, it's nice to have like, oh, let's all just work and share. But most of us don't do most of the work. You know, a lot, but 28% of us sort of just sort of. Do just as little as possible, and the 20%. There's 20% left doing it like a lot, 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 and they get resentful after a while and say, "Hey, why should I beat myself up?" I'm gonna, after about two years, they just kick back and say, "Well, I'm going to ride. I'm going to ride the gravy train too," and then nothing gets done, you know, kind of thing. So that's just my take. I might be wrong on that.
2: Would that be a negative for Church Gardens?
1: <laughs> it's something you're going to have to address, re- you know in the discussion stage hopefully rather than after it you know blossoms and becomes a problem you know that kind of thing cuz I, I i guarantee you're going to run into it huh
2: put a sign on the garden gate that says who do not work you do not eat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: You could, yeah, there's, you know, like, I, I think the one I was doing, uh, and I have a couple of videos. Will this do, uh, you want to watch, uh, you want me to just start with information, I was going to do weed management, or do you want me to do a couple of we- videos kind of piggybacking off what he said? Mm-hmm. You want to do weed management? Yeah, go ahead and do your talk and then do them. Yeah. In the video okay. Well, uh, it's up to you. I mean, uh, I have a little, the conference did a little video of me sort of doing the same thing he did, but it was like two minutes, you know, and uh, I kind of explained it, it kind of shows you. Yeah, show you want to show it real quick? Sure. Or do you want to do the weed management?
2: Sure, sure.
1: What network is it? There's no Wi-Fi in here. Yeah. Really? OK. All right, well, I guess we'll have to do weed management then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's General uh, Georgia Cumberland Conference, uh, Vimeo. And their Vimeo thing, uh, Google. Uh, you can search Scott Garden. Search Scott Garden. Uh, something like that. I think that'll probably get you a list of. And I'll be on there. And I got, I got three or four on there. But the two, uh, the two short ones I like. They did a whole hour-long conference. It's my first, first ever one. is really bad. I mean, I mean, if you think this is bad, you know, you should see that one. Uh, I was my first time in front of people, and it was, I was kind of, and my thing didn't work and oh man it was terrible. They they videoed anyway, and put it up there. <laughs> I was like take that off. <laughs> you know? But the two little short little clips they really. I mean those those came out really good. Their video media department put it together and spliced it and you know, it clips along really nice and says what it needs to say and all that kind of stuff. Um all right. What's that, second word you said after Georgia. Georgia the Conference, it's GCC. Short uh yeah, GCC, uh, and then uh, when you get to um, uh, look at their audio link and then, you know, go down to the Vimeo. Yeah, Vimeo is a separate site. It's not linked to the... You can I don't... go to Vimeo and
2: search you. Hmm? You can just go to Vimeo and search your name.
1: Yeah, and, and put in their Garden, Scott, and Arrington, and then Garden, and it'll probably come up. Yeah, I found it, we called it Church Sponsored Farming. Oh, yeah. That's what you can put in there too, Church Sponsored Farming. Yes. Uh, okay, weed management And we'll just get right started. Uh, okay, I'm going to have a little spiritual things here with some Ellen White uh, things. Uh, the thing I got at Ellen White, and I have her books, on, we've put together, compiled some agriculture books, Ellen White wrote, you know, uh, some of her quotes in there. She didn't write a book on agriculture, but they compiled some. And uh, the thing I got out of her deal, and, and it kind of is a little bit onto the, you know, churches and stuff like that doing this, is it's supposed to be an occupation. She never calls it a ministry or, a, what's the other word, ministry or a, um, an outreach is one. Uh, she never calls it a ministry or outreach or, um, what's the other word people use, a mission. That's what I'm looking for, a mission. Uh, She always refers to it as an occupation. And she's not talking about thousand acre farms. She's talking about small farming as an occupation. And that's what she saw uh, as a viable form of work and being compensated for. People could actually make a living small farming as an occupation. Most people don't believe that, but she seemed to believe it. She she also indicated that everyone should be somehow involved. If you're not doing the actual farming, then either supporting it with your food purchases or organizing, uh, you know, uh, farmer's markets. There's a lot of ways you can support local organic agriculture. And I say organic, at least meaning naturally grown or bio-friendly. You know, you can be strict with that, you know, certified organic, or you can be a little looser. But, you know, bio-friendly is what we want. We don't want to destroy the earth while we're growing our food. And uh, everyone should somehow be involved. And it takes a lot of organization to do farmer's markets for the community. But organizing a farmer's market for the community is a great way to help the community. And it's a great way to help the farmer because it gives him a market for his produce. And so he can make an an occupation with a livable wage. And she also talks about bringing science into the work and and into this work of agriculture because, um, uh, you know, We've learned that it's a lot of microbiology and a lot of biology. It's uh, chemistry and it's going to be a lot of physics and electrical energies that we have to sort of have a layman's grasp of in order to do it well. So she talks about it involving science. It's not just about going out there and throwing horse manure and tilling it in and say, I'm an organic farmer now. You know, that's all there is to it. That's not a lot of science, you know. You want, you want to know sometimes horse manure is good, sometimes it's not. You want to know why it's good and why it's not good. Okay? So that's what I got out of her reading and, and um, here's one of her Uh, statements and I put the the, sort of the key things I thought in yellow. In the study of agriculture, let pupils be given not only theory but practice. All right, that means like you can't just do PowerPoints on them. You have to actually get out there and do them, you know. While they learn that science, while they learn what science can teach in regard, there's the science, into nature and the preparation of the soil. The value of different crops and the best methods of production, let them put their knowledge to use. Let teachers share their work with the students and show that results can be achieved through skillful, intelligent effort. That doesn't sound like dummies out on the farm, you know. Uh, thus may be uh, thus may be awaken a genuine interest and ambition to do the work in the best possible manner, which I'm trying to, that's why I'm trying to, sh- you know, some people say, well, I've been gardening 10 years and I didn't know we had to do all this. Well, I'm telling you, I'm telling you the, the, the reason I'm teaching you all this is because I did it on an acre and a half farm on a guy who made a living on an acre and a half, and to make a living on an acre and a half, you got to be efficient. you got to execute. you got to have a plan. you got to execute the plan. You don't have time to sort of dawdle, you know, and go in and have a long lunch. I mean, you've got X amount of do on a certain day. It's just like having any kind of job that you check in and check out of, okay? And you're the ma- you know you're your own boss, and nobody's going to get onto you if you're not doing it. You've got to have self-discipline to get out there and do it and get it done on time when it needs to be done. So it teaches a lot of those things, right? Uh, uh, such ambition, together with the invigorating exercise, sunshine, and pure air, which are all benefits of gardening, will create a love for agricultural labor. We're not seeing that really in Adventism right now. I mean, it's gone downhill, and my my thing belief on that is it's gone downhill because we ran it in more of a communistic kind of manner, you know. Uh, we pay the, I mean, how, long, how many times have I, I was talking to somebody the other day, how many times have I looked back at Southern Tidings, which is our conference's, you know, well, it's actually the Unions magazine. Um, and there's always the same ad there for Laurel Brook Academy. Anybody know where Laurel Brook Academy is? And for 10 years now, they've been looking for a farm manager. <laughs> like, when are they ever going to fill that position? <laughs> and and the reason is, I mean, I went up there and I said, hey, what's the deal? You know, I, you know I'd like to farm and, and, well, they want to give you $500 a month, give you room and board, and then say, hey, but don't worry, you got all the free labor you need, the students. I'm going, no, you, you know, that's, huh? You can't make a living. If you're a, if you're a, the only people that do it, they only do it for a couple years, are people that have really no talent. And they just sort of land there, you know what I mean? And it and it and it never works out. There's a lot of hope in the beginning, and it just sort of fizzles after a couple of years, you know. And they realize, hey, this is not going to be done. You don't have any. You know, it's not a, it's not a job for somebody who's just needing a place to stay or the roof over his head. You know what I mean? No initiative. <laughs> huh? No initiative. There's no initiative. There's no motivation, really. I mean, you can go in with a lot of enthusiasm, but it wears off pretty quick in the you know 90 degree weather in July. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so. I think we need to turn, return it to a more sort of a capitalistic and I would say Protestant model of free market capitalism and fair trade, um, and I think that teaches the kids. It, that way, they'll see it can be an occupation because it, you know you're out there and you're making $500 a month and you're living in a little hovel that you get supplied for as part of your paycheck, and your kids, are, the kids are being used as kind of like indentured servants to pay down their tuition or whatever. I mean, where's the motivation? I mean, it's like a, a what do they call those things? It's like a work camp in Russia or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I think kids, I know I was energized to do this when I saw a free market marker making a living, you know, making $40,000 a year small farming. And I said, hey, I can do that. If I went to one of our uh, independent ministries and I started looking at the way they farmed, I'd say, man, I never want to do that. Did
2: you present
1: that to them, your idea? I, I, I did, but I had to go through a mediator to the board. The board would never let me present it to the board. I had to go through, and he always got lost in translation, I think. Yeah, anyway, he worked it around to a sort of a more ministry way. He never really, you know, and it, that's where some of the problems came in. Because I'm all capitalism, and they were all like mission, ministry, and all this, you know. But, it, but the thing is, when you do it right, it becomes a ministry. I, I can't tell you, I was charging people $4 a pound for tomatoes at two markets in the middle of the week in Atlanta. And I, can't, and I was selling carrots for $3 a bunch. And I can't tell you the amount of people that came up to me and said, you know, and I told them, well, I'm being sponsored by the church. They're giving me the land pretty much rent free. That's their name on the sign. Here's some of their tr- literature. You know, here's the church. Come by on a Wednesday. Come by on a Saturday. Come by and just see the garden anytime if you want. Just give me a call first. And I can't imagine, I can't tell you the amount of people that would pay $4 a pound for a, a tomato and say, man I really want to thank you and thank your church for allowing us to have this uh, you know, opportunity. Because a lot of people are not getting into this. They don't, they don't like it. They, you know, it's too much work for them. But there are some like me that kind of like it. You know? But you just need to marry the people with the land with the people who are willing to do the work and let the people who are willing to do the work profit from it and be motivated by that profit. And not the people on the land say, well, hey, I'm the landowner, you know, I need a, a large share of that just because I own the land, you know. And, but landowner is going to have to get a little more benefactory, you know, a little more giving. Otherwise, they're going to sit there doing nothing. And it's not going to do the landowner any good anyway. I'd re- if I was a landowner, I'd say, here, take this land for a dollar a month. And I'll, give you a, I'll give you some infrastructure. I want to see something because you're improving my land. You're going to raise my property values. I can, see, I can realize some money later on. You get the money now from what you're doing. But, you know, it's hard for some people to sh- see that far in the future, you know. Um,
2: Over the years, they've done a lot of sharecropping.
1: Sharecropping never worked. Tenant farming never worked. That's why it's not around. I mean, I went back and did the history on that. That's why we have big 1,000-acre corporate farms, and the farmers have to get out there. And basically now, the guys who don't own 1,000 or 2,000 acres, they have to write contracts with big corporations, and the corporation says, this is how we want you to farm. And they're just—they're just like puppets on the—you know, their strings being pulled by the corporations that say I got to have X amount of tomatoes to make my Campbell soup, you know, and blah, blah. Yeah, sure. Huh? That's
2: more like—I mean—in our area they're still doing that. They're doing sharecropping, but remember, the, the guy owns the land, but he pays—he pays for the fertilizer and equalizers, the, and then they both profit on the. You know, is it working? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you need to give a do a seminar on why how that works.
2: Let's see that, but that is. A So how
1: what, what's the share that the landowner takes?
2: Percentages.
1: Yeah. In the past, they wanted too much of a percentage, right. and most farmers say, you know, it's not enough for me. I, I think yeah. I'll go to the city and get a factory job.
2: Right. Then it doesn't work. Yeah. You've yeah. Gotta, it's got to be an equalized you know, percentage.
1: Right. Anyway, uh, thus might be set on foot the influences that would go far in turning the migration, which now sets so strongly towards the great cities. Uh, Enough said about that. Here's another quote she has. Fresh produce is a special about families and institutions should learn to do more in the cultivation and improvement of land. If people only knew the value of products on the ground which the earth brings forth in their season, more diligent, effort, more diligent efforts would be made to cultivate the soil. All, everyone, not just a few people, should be acquainted with the special value of fruits and vegetables fresh, not just at the store, but fresh from the orchard or garden. Like I said, all should be involved somehow of fresh food, you know, whether you're supporting it with your dollars, whether you're organizing food, uh, farmers markets, or whether you're actually participating in the growing and the harvesting. Um, let's just hit the highlights. Uh, no one can succeed in, gar- in agriculture or gardening without attention to the laws involved. She's talking about the laws of nature. Uh, the special needs of every variety. Must, a plant must be studied. Lots to learn. I'm still learning. Different varieties require a different soil and cultivation. That's true about that. Compliance, uh, nothing wrong about that. Compliance with the laws and governing each is, in, uh, each is the condition of success. Um, attention required to transplanting. Uh, care of the young plants. Pruning, watering. Shield. See, there's so many things. We're trying to take them off one at a time. Uh, the frost at night. Uh, keeping out the weeds, which are going to... Come here in a minute. Uh, Training and arranging, carefulness, patience. I mean, she takes, you know, she pretty much covers the whole deal right there. Uh, Constant contact with the mystery of life and the loveliness of nature, as well as the tenderness called forth in ministering to these beautiful objects of God's creation. This stuff is character building. Okay? And it's character correcting. I mean, it'll bring out your character flaws, and you'll either have to sweep it under the carpet or deal with it. You know what I mean? But you'll keep getting them brought into your face again. and, and so, uh, the thing, you know, is that, you know, we, we know about nature and, and a lot of times we go walk around the lake, you know, on Sabbath, you know, admire God's nature. But I, I think I, I might have been repeating myself or I said it out there, but, you know, when you, when you do a garden and, and you start learning all the amazing things of how that works, you know, with some of the things we've been studying and how to do it good, you, you know, that it's, it's like walking around the lake times a million To to, you know, to have get this acquaintedness with nature. I mean, you just don't get the full depth of it walking around a lake on a Sabbath. I mean, you doing it every day in the garden. Nature really, really, you you know, comes out at you and the God of nature. Um, Okay, we got to make a livable wage, and I right now I would say a livable wage is anywhere from 25 to 45 k net, and uh, that would take about 50 to 90 k gross. Uh, the goal is, uh, I, I always put my average as trying to gross a dollar a square foot, and I, um, my net is 50 cents a square foot. Usually, on the first year, I can meet that. And the second, third year, it gets better and better. So it takes, it takes four years to really get this thing up and running. Uh, of land needed to meet the minimum net is about 50,000 square feet or 1.2 acres for the first year. Uh, here is a thing that appeared on the internet about how the, the schools that uh, your graduates were the highest degree uh, first year out of college and guess who was number one with the, uh, you, you could earn the most money first year out of college of all the schools, Loma Linda, number one, 000, 71K a year first year out of college and, and it's above MIT, it's above Har- Har- Harvey, Harvey Mudd, I thought it was Harvard. <laughs> I don't know about Harvey Mudd, but uh, but uh, but anyways, there's some pretty big name colleges around here: Carnegie, Princeton, uh, uh, Princeton, and Carnegie, and Polytech University of New York. Anyway, those are that's no slouch uh, uh, arrangement of colleges there. Yeah.
0: The reason for that is that Loma Linda is a health sciences university. Right. And health sciences typically is paid higher than some of the other technology. Yeah,
1: areas. Th- that's true. This is Loma Linda is concentrated just on the healthcare. Basically. And uh, some of these others are healthcare plus a lot of other things that kind of tend to average that lower down, you know. Because healthcare, uh, you know, when you get out and you're in healthcare, you know, you get a good paying job because there's a lot of sick people around, you know. Uh, what a, at first you get kind of proud because, hey, Loma Linda, hey. But then you start thinking, w- we, we, why are your young people wanting to do this rather than getting to small farming? Where are the small farmers? And And you start to think, well, Hey, 71k a year, just starting out, sounds pretty good. I, you know, farming and working that hard for 40k a year, maybe, that don't sound so good. And, um, you know, there's a lot of prestige that goes, in, you know, in with the healthcare industry. So I'm thinking, you know, we kind of have, we're, we, are we gonna have, if we're gonna really do anything with at small, uh, you know, small agriculture with the church, we're gonna have to get it out of ministry missions and all that and bring it into something where you could compete with this. And you know, and, and instead of helping the people on the back end after they get sick, a garden can help them people on the front end before they, get, before they get sick. I'm not saying there's not a need for after sickness care, but there's also a, just as much need or more need for before sickness care. And you've got to make that profitable and not just make it a mission you do on weekends. Because gardening you can't just do it on weekends bigger, you know, making money at it. Now if you're doing a backyard garden, hey, two hours a day or an hour a day or an hour every other day, you can, you can do a pretty good garden at home. Uh, all these people, I know I've met every one of them, and um, where's my thing? That's Elliot Coleman over there. He makes uh, uh, $120,000 a year up in Maine. Uh, probably He probably nets about $80,000. Plus, he wrote a couple books. That, doesn't, that, helps, that helps his average a little bit, too. Uh, this is Alex and uh, I think her name is Bonnie Hitt. Uh, they're up in North Carolina. You could go to their farm and take a tour. If you're in North Carolina, if you're up in Maine, visit Elliot Coleman's farm. Uh, uh, Alex Hitt does a lot of these kind of presentations. He's not an Adventist, but if you ever could get him to speak instead of me, oh, you'd learn a lot more than you're learning from me, because this guy's been doing it for 30 years, and he, him and his wife, they're the two people that lived in a tent I was talking about. And, and, and sold shares. To, they didn't even have the money. They were just out of college, and they were college sweethearts. And they they somehow devised a way to have investors. And then they, after about ten years, they had paid off all their investors, and they owned the land outright. And now they're just still servicing the community with their land. And people, like I was going to tell you, people who come to the market says thank you, for this, community um what's the, the community outreach. Even though I'm charging them four dollars a pound for a tomato, they still see it as a community outreach, and they still thank you know tell me to thank the church for letting me. Farm on their land and making it possible because they see the connection. Uh, It's called Paragine Farm. I think it's a falcon, Paragine Falcon. Uh, You named it after. I guess there's falcons around there. Uh, And it's, I want to say it's in the Raleigh area, you know, Durham, the triangle there, somewhere outside, just outside there. Uh, This is Mark Caney's in Arkansas, a dripping. Uh, what's the name of his farm? I think it's called Dripping Springs. But he makes a living farming, makes a good living, done, done it, been doing it for 20, 30 years now. L.A. Coleman just about uh, 40 years, him about 30 years. This is the Davare's family over here out in California, in Pasadena. If you're out that way, check them out. They'll, they'll let you look around. Just call them up and let them know you're coming. And of course this is Daniel who after five years at Gaia Gardens doing their uh, garden plot for profit. He won. Uh, it's called. The, this is George Organics, and he won the Land Stewardship of a Year Award. I tell you, there wasn't an Adventist sitting in that room, and you know, and 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 you get this award because you farm organically and you're able to teach people and help people, and they see that as a community service and they give you a award for it, you know, and uh, and he was farming for profits. The first year, he made forty grand a year. He grossed forty grand a year, probably kept twenty, but the, by his fifth year, he was grossing one hundred twenty grand a year. Or 90 grand a year on this plot, keeping 45 grand on an acre and a half. So it can be done, and these people are doing it. None of them are Adventists. I think the Adventists I know who are making a living at it are the Dysingers up in Nashville. I know of them, and I, and I think a guy in West Virginia named, uh, do you know him? Um, Anyway, he's making. I think he's making a living. I'm not sure. He might be retired and you know, living off a of pension. But I know the Dicingers are trying to make a living at it. Uh, church-sponsored farming is what I call it. Uh, what is in it for the church? Good land stewardship. You get to walk your talk there. Uh, fresh nutritious food. Community building. Relationship building. We talk about relationships all the time. This is really relationship building. Membership building uh, because people sometimes want to go to church that has a farm, you know. Uh, membership satisfaction. People, I mean, even though we had sort of care, uh, personality problems at the church I was on with the farming, most of the lay members loved coming out to the garden. I don't care. Some people had a problem with the way it was run and being for profit and not being a giveaway project, you know. But the, but the garden itself, everybody loved it. And church members loved coming out there to it. Uh, uh, good public relations for the community. And uh, then we always have the thing of end time preparedness. You know, what are we going to do when we move out in the country? we're going to have to grow our food, or be, gather berries, I guess, or go back to meat-eating, hunting squirrels, I don't know. Uh, what's not in it for the church? Okay, there's no money in it for the church. Let's just take that off the table right now. You're going to have to let the farmer make the money, in my view. And he's not going to get rich. Don't think he's going to be laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> he's going to work hard for that money. People who thought it was a bad deal, a lot of people in the church who thought that they were getting a raw deal... In the beginning ended up seeing how hard, how much work it took and how much organization it took and they said, Scott, you deserve every penny of what you make, you know. So, don't even think there's any money in it for the church or free food for everybody. Well, advertising costs money,
2: right? And so, when you go to the market and you're advertising. I tried to that bring that
1: up. I had two markets, sometimes three. I used to average on the front of the thing I had the church's name so, in a church, uh, Seventh-day Adventist logo, a thousand people a week saw the church's name in the Seventh-day Adventist logo. Sure. That has value. That's what the is uh, when a hundred of those thousand people came in and bought stuff a week, uh, then I could reinforce that. Oh, yeah, this is a church-sponsored farm. Here's the produce. They don't want to know about anything religious, so they, you just send, you know take, change the money. But still, it's it a little more in their heads. And, and then when the people said, well, what does third angel mean? That's what I call my entity, third angel. And it's like, well, why does the church do this? And then you get in a discussion. If you, got, you know, if you don't have a lot of people waiting. You get in a discussion and you are say, well, here, take this track or take this paper where the church is. And now that has value. Right. I mean, how much are you going to spend on a Daniel Revelation mailing is my point. That's and I try. Evangelism
2: in itself. Huh? Evangelism. That's
1: what right. Yeah, it's, a, it's an outlet for that. Okay. And you're not expecting somebody to sit out there and do all this work for free. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I do. I have, you know, usually five people a week. You know, it's not a lot. It's always a percentage scale it down. But, you know, five people a week is more than most people are doing this sitting in the pews. Mm So. But it's
2: a positive image of the church and how much public relations that work?
1: It works. I mean, I think it works. I mean, they try to do a a community garden. Here we're going to get into the weed man. They try to do a community garden in another church because they want everything for free and they want to be a part of the community and they had all these kind of. Ideas, you know how this is going kind to of work, but they only only one guy was doing all the work, and he was spending a lot of his own money. He took two thousand dollars out of the church budget, and they don't even have a garden to look at. You go over there; it looks like a ghost town. It's dead. That's community. That the only community gardens that work well are when you pay the. You have a manager there, who organ keeps everything organized on a day-to-day basis. He has plants to put in people's hands. He has tools to be put in people's hands. Uh, people rent the garden space, so if they leave it. They get kicked off and somebody else who's going to keep up with it gets put on. And you have to have some kind of organizational structure and pay the person doing the organizing. That's the only community gardens I've ever seen work. And they're good when you, you pay at least the guy a livable wage or the gal a livable wage to run it. And I could take you to a few in Atlanta if that's the model you want to go in that work really good. But just remember, just like a pastor needs a wage, a person running that farm on a daily basis or that community garden needs a wage. You can't expect somebody to go out there for free.
2: Is a community garden, each person has their own little area? Mm-hmm.
1: Right, but the, the, the community manager, they, they have a house where they have uh, seminars and programs about gardening. Uh, they have a tool shed where people, that, you know, you can bring your own tools. If you don't have a tool, you can get loaned out, you know, sign out a tool that you need. You got to sign it back in. And you need that kind of structure in that organization, or it's just a chaotic mess, you know. In the UK, they have uh, what is called law. You can get them a law. The yeah. I'm not quite following you, but I'd like to discuss that with you. Yeah. Now, let me yeah, go on you, yeah, but I, I, you have to explain that to me a little better. Um, okay, weed management. Builds character, reveals character. Uh, if Genesis 4 said, if you do as well shall you not be accepted. This is uh, uh, God speaking to Cain. Uh, and if you do not well sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and, 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 and you shall rule over him. So, there's hope. <laughs> and I always kind of, uh, you know wheat and the tares, I always look at weeds like you know, if you're not, if you get to like that, you, it, it's saying something about your character. You know what I mean? Your layout was bad, your pre- preparation, your planning was bad, uh, your attention to detail is bad, and it's like, and, and weeds are like sin at the door. If you don't, if you're not diligent, they're going to take, it, take you over, just like they did Cain. But, it's not hopeless, you can rule over them, but you got to have a system, you got to have a method, you got to work on uh, principles of efficiency. Uh, Benefits of weeds. Weeds are not always bad. Like I told you before, weeds uh, have a good side to them, just like, you know. Uh, And the good side to weeds is that uh, they indicate uh, shortages, nutrient shortages in the soil because weeds can survive where other plants can't. They've developed ways to survive where other plants can't. That's why you can see a weed growing out of a crack in a sidewalk, okay? Uh, Nothing else can grow there, but a weed has figured out a way to do it and that's what it likes it doesn't like a lot of competition in good soil so if you get your soils really good and a lot of things can grow there weeds don't really want to grow there that's not their that's not their their habitat they like desolate soils and bad soils so look at weeds that way as kind of indicators that you're kind of doing something wrong now there are some weeds that like fertile soils too but they're really not usually are not nauseous weeds they're hard you know really hard to pull up or really hard to get rid of they're usually pretty easy you know like other plants. Like, you know how easy it is to pull a basil out of the soil, you know, when you get done? Well, good we- weeds that grow in good soil, they're pretty easy to get rid of, you know, they're not there and stuck there, you know. Weeds are nature's soil builders because in time, weeds will replant, you know, calcium will be pulled up by these taprooted reeds and, and then the, the dandelion will die on the surface and you'll get calcium on the surface now when it used to be, you know, five feet under the ground and nothing else could get it, right? But the, in time, weeds would fertilize the earth. But it would take longer than our lifetimes for that to happen. So we've got to hurry up the process a little bit. Uh, variety indicates, element, uh, the variety of weed indicates uh, imbalances in the soil, decay problems. Some weeds sprout up because you're not, you're, you're not decomposing your, your, resid, your residue into the, your dirt. You don't have good microbial activity. It's not decomposing or you're, you're buried. I get a weed called henbit. I think I'm going to go into this. Which actually likes methane gas produced by fermenting stuff, you know, in too deep, and it said, so, "Well, I got henbit. That means I'm tilling too deep. I need to get, start tilling shallow because I got fermenting stuff down there that's giving off methane gas. That's not good for most plants. It's good for henbit. It likes that. Uh, given time, we each could fix the problems, preparing the soil for higher plant forms. You know." starts off as prairies and it gets to shrubs and you know, it gets higher and higher and higher. But when we're trying to grow crops, we're trying to grow pretty high plant forms. So we gotta have good soil to grow those, you know, grow those plant forms. Uh, as soils become more fertile, weeds that do grow become trap crops for harm- harmful insects. Uh, a case in point is I like to plant basil as a cover crop sometimes during the summer. Well, if you let basil go, you try to take it down before it goes to seed, but occasionally my next crop will be something else, and I'll get a few volunteer basil come up. Well, actually, i just let those grow because they actually uh, attract, actually, they're lure crops, they actually attract wasps because when they flower. So a few basil growing in amongst my plants, I think is a good thing, right? Uh, Weed is defined as any plant growing where you don't want it to grow, that's a weed. So even something, even a broccoli plant, if you don't want it to grow there, you you know, you need to get rid of it. Uh, Huh? Well, yeah, you can do that. But it's still, if it's not growing where you want it to grow, then it's designated a weed. It doesn't matter what it is. As soils become more fertile, weeds that do grow become trap crops for more harmful insects. I'm not sure. I'm thinking about lure crops. I'm going to have to revisit my number five there. As a cultivated small weed top becomes green, green manure for the soil while the decaying, and that's what I was, when you mentioned about pull that weed. Okay, you guys can finish that sentence. Most weeds proliferate by seed. Very few proliferate by leaving roots in the ground. Now those are a problem and you do want to pull the ones, those ones up. But most, but most weeds, about 90% of them, you, you, they proliferate by seed. So what you want to do is get them young, while you, there's special tools I'm going to show you to get them while they're young, and then shave them because the part you shave off, if you get them when they're teeny and they're just little infants, right? That's the secret. Get them when they're just like, you know, everybody has grown their own sprouts here, right? you know when sprouts just start sprouting their little thread stage they call it a little white tail comes out if you get the weeds then or you know before they get maybe as maximum an inch high I mean after an inch it's pretty much they're pretty much on their way but when you get them really young and you shave them you leave the root in there well that becomes a channel for air a channel for uh, water and also the carbon that you leave in that root it's gonna die and it becomes carbon it decomposes and feeds the soil right? well it recycles I should say the soil doesn't feed it Huh? We're going to get into that after lunch, okay? So if you shave it, then then the top part lays on the soil, right? And it decomposes and becomes organic matter for your garden. So that's how weeds can actually kind of help you if you get them young, all right? Yeah. Okay, is that the next slide? Okay, you got to have different weeds. You got broadleaf weeds like beggar weed here. Uh, what's it? Lamb's quarter is another one. You know, they have—they're not—they're not grasses in other words. Okay, they're broad leaves. Okay, then you have uh, grass-type weeds. Uh, this is bahia grass, uh, and then you have curly dock, which is a broadleaf with a taproot. Okay. Uh, these are good herbs. I mean, you know, they're not all bad. You could probably dig the uh, roots up and, you know, they, I th- they help arthritis and stuff like that. And you dry the root and, and, and grind it and it helps arthritis. So, you know, one man's weed is another man's <laughs> herb, you know, <laughs> you know? but, uh, and actually they do grow these for, you know, for profit and stuff like that. But in your garden when you don't want it to grow there, it's a weed. And uh, so what do these weeds mean? Usually a broadleaf weed means you've got low phosphorus and high potassium. Okay, that's when the, you know, the people say, oh, well, what are we going to do in the end of the times when we, don't ha- we can't send our soil tests in? Well, your weeds can kind of tell you uh, th- some of the problems with the soil. So this is sort of a generality. Uh, there's a book out where it gives you every different weed and every- what it means to the soil. And I have that book, and I'm always looking at it to see, well, what does this weed mean? But first, you've got to identify the weed. Huh? What's the name of the book? Weeds and why they grow. I'm going to have it on here. Uh, uh, so, broadleaf weeds mean low potassium and high, uh, low phosphorus and high potassium. K means potassium. Uh, grass type weeds mean low calcium. You know, lots of Johnson grass. People complain about Johnson grass. We get, uh, you know, I got crabgrass in Bermuda. Um, but, um, and we told, talked about the difference in grasses. But usually the, there are these runner grasses that are nauseous and you really can't pull these because they're all over the place and they, a lot of them germinate by their root, right? So what you do is you just keep them knocked down and hopefully they'll wear themselves out. And that's the other reason you weed when they're really small because think about it, you know, if you can kill that weed when it's really small, it has no energy to come back. And you time it where it's going to be a hot day on the next day, it's just going to burn up in the sun because it's really small and you've got it, the next day is a hot day, there's no rain. It's not going to re-root or re-seed, It's just going to die. So when you shave it like that, uh, you know, it uh I' forget my point, but anyways, uh, when you, what was I talking about? Well, when you shave it, Yeah, okay, it's like uh like, yeah, thank you. it's like uh like babies, you know if you if you punch uh, this is a graphic it, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, well it, it's like when things are infant they, huh huh? Yeah, when things are infant, they're fragile. And you kill, you kill them then, they don't come back. If you let that weed get two inches, three inches tall, you, sh- you try to go in there and shave it, you're probably not going to kill it then. It's probably got enough energy left in that root to come back. Okay? Because it's a teenager now. It's a young adult. It's not full grown, but it's 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 got enough energy to come back. And it won't die the next day in the sun. And, you know, you, you take your, you, you reduce the, you, you you lose the efficiency of getting it while it's young. You under- Does that make sense to you guys? Okay.
2: I have a question about the low calcium. Does that weed cause that condition?
1: No. No, those conditions exist. And that weed has figured out a way to flourish in that kind of bad condition, not good for your higher forms of plants like your broccolis and your tomatoes. So
2: you add calcium
1: somehow. That's what you need to do. Okay. So yeah. But I would right now before while we're not in the end times, I would send my soil to a soil. That's what I do: send my soil and get a soil test because I'm not real good at this yet. But I always always like to compare my soil test to the weeds I'm seeing, and saying, "Does that match that book I'm talking about?" You know, boy, I says it has low calcium. Yeah, I got broadleaf weeds or uh, I got grass weeds. You know. And that book says this type of grass, bahia grass, is a sign of low calcium. So now I put little check marks and kind of like, oh, I've seen that weed before on the book, you know, and I kind of know that when I don't have, I can't send my soil to a soil lab and get the scientists to figure out what's wrong with my soil. I can hopefully go back to my book and look at my notes and say, wow, you know, I had that with low calcium. I better add some more calcium somehow, Okay. If you got the weed, calcium's low. Yes. Not, it you don't have to have a browning of the weed. That weed's going to flourish in low calcium. Other plants can't. The plants you're trying to grow and want to eat can't, but that weed can. Do you understand? Weeds, we. No, that's not true. But then you adding more happened to me, yeah, yeah. You can have too much of most nurseries, and because they've been taught this way in our universities, is there's no such thing as uh, excess in the soil. There's only deficiencies, and why do they teach that at nurseries? Because they can sell more product. If you never think you, if you never think you can have too much, then you just buy more. But you're going to hurt your soils because excesses can tie up other nutrients, and I can, well, we can get into all that. But you know, you can see like you can say, wow. I look in a book and I see I got an iron deficiency. Well, you might have plenty of iron in your soil, but the plant shows you have an iron deficiency. Why is that? Because you got too much potassium. And when there's too much potassium, iron doesn't make it into your plant. You see how that happens? Does that make sense? So just because you see your plant has a looks like it has an iron deficiency. Don't go run to the store and buy a bunch of iron because you might have plenty of iron. What your problem is you've got excess potassium. That means stop buying potassium.: Well, I can't go through all the permeations. you know you have to get books and even I have to go back to the books and look at pictures and you know, figure stuff out. So I'm not going to cover all that, but yeah, it, it, but it is, but you know we got the website now. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff, you just Google it, you know it's great, you. Know? Uh, you got to before you can before you can address the problem. You got to identify your weed. Now, I had both. These are two pictures. I don't know if I took these, but I had them in my I had them in my garden. And they and I, for the longest time I said these are the same weed, but they're different. And I couldn't figure. They were never growing at the same time, you know. And I, I was like, wait a minute. I think that's what I had, you know, just a couple of months ago. And uh, but it's not. It finally, and you know, I could. i was looking on the internet. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out. What it was, and I finally was in a bookstore, like a Borders or whatever, Barnes and Noble, and I went over to the plant section and started looking through their weed of identification books, you know, and I'm like, and then I was just flipping through it and I found it, and I'm like, there it is, and it was that purple dead nettle, which is this one right here. Purple dead nettle, this is Henbit. Look very similar, especially when they don't grow at the same time. You think, that's that weed again. Uh, but again, I uh, went, uh, and you can see, I had, it ha- it, when, when you, the reason you do the proper identification the taxonomy is so you can get down and identify these weeds, and not just, because, you know, people might be calling this purple dead nettle, and other people might be calling this purple dead nettle, people might, you know, just depending on where you are, common names mean nothing. When you can get it down to the genus species, then you can Google that genus species, and now you get scientific university reports on that weed, and not just folklore, okay? So what's along the right? <coughs> this one? That's Hinbit. Hens like it. They go, they go nuts. So if you've got hens, they like, they'll take care of those for you. That's why they call it. Well, if you like them, keep them. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay, this is that book I was talking about, Weeds and Why They Grow by J. McCayman. J. L. McCayman. And uh, we're going to look at a little bit of page there. Here, here's... It has a little intro section, and it, the information in the intro section is most, you know what I'm giving you now. It's very interesting. But then the bulk of the book is all these tables, right? And here we have right here, dead nettle. There's my purple dead nettle right there. I come over there. There's a, I, I didn't find it by looking for dead nettle. I find it with this name here, this, uh, their genus species name. And guess what? Low in calcium, low in P2O5, which is phosphorus that the plant, the uh, form of phosphorus the plant used, and low, uh, high in calcium. Or, sorry, potassium. 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 And it goes on here, you got, all, you got, you got manganese, you got uh, magnesium, you got iron, you got sulfates, all these things plant use, uh, and it goes on out, and they got all the other elements on the next page here. So, it, very, very informative. All right, right tools, and I got some of these I want to bring down and show you after lunch. But here, you get these out of the Johnny's catalog. They don't sell them at Ace Hardware. They don't sell them at Home Depot. You get the cheap $25 China knockoff there, okay? And you keep somebody employed over in China. These are grown over in Europe, so you keep somebody employed over Europe. And someday, when enough people start buying these tools, maybe they'll have an American manufacturer of these things. But right now, we're just into big farming, so we only make big tools. Or we make cheap little backyard tools for the budget-conscious homeowner, you know? Uh, Over in Europe, they are serious about small gardening and they, over there, they can make money building these really good tools. Now you pay good money, you pay about $50 for these two hoes, this collinear hoe and that trapezoid hoe. This is a cheap china knockoff of a stirrup hoe I got at Ace Hardware. Now you can find that at Ace Hardware, but none of these others you can find there. And down there is a wheel hoe, okay? So you gotta buy the right tools, and the good tools, they last a lifetime, you can pass them down to your kids. They got replacement parts that you can, and the replacement part is cheaper than the whole thing, like it should be. This is, there is no replacement part for this. It's some nondescript company you never know the name of over in China. This, you can find the manufacturer, and, the, and Johnny's who sells these tools, they can send you a replacement part, and have, you can have it in three days. Uh, this is a hand version of these two. So when you really have to get close, you can use like carrots or something like that. You can use that. These two you stand up and use. And this one is basically a stirrup hoe on a wheel, which is a lot easier to use than this. This is easy to use, and that's even easier. But it costs about $280. Okay, but it's worth it. It saves time. And time is money. Uh, Buy the right tools. Uh, You want to be doing this? Look at this. This is uh, uh, either, I think this is probably garlic or onions. Looks like onions. Uh, And look at when he, now most of this now most people look at that field and say, why is he weeding? That That looks weedless. I'm telling you, he's getting those weeds when they're really, really small. That's the way real farmers do it. They don't wait till you get weeds like this. Huh? That's called the wheel hoe. And it's got offset handles so you don't have to walk on the bed. You can walk on your walkway and it's angled over so you can not step on your walkway while you're weeding it. And that's why you don't want to make your beds too wide again, is because those offset handles don't really work when it's the, you're having to go way over. They just work when you have to go a little ways over it, okay? So, huh? Yeah, right there. Yeah, the That's the wheel hoe. It's basically a stirrup hoe on a wheel, and it's a loty. When you've got to do this much, now, see, you could knock that out. I mean, he could get to the end. of That looks about like 300 feet right there, right? He'll be the end. you got kind of to have a, do a back and forth motion with it, but it's pretty fast. And he can be the end of that row, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, three minutes. And it's weeded in three minutes. Yep, that's how real farmers do it. They don't weed, they cultivate. Cultivating is like scratching the surface before the weeds become a problem. When you're out here like this, you're not using your intelligence. You're not being disciplined enough to get out there when they're small. You know, you've got a lot of character flaws you need to address because it, you're going to spend a lot of time and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to give up. And you're going to walk away and go to the beach and just buy your food from the store like everybody else. <laughs> it isn't worth it because here, hey man, that was, that was easy. It didn't take me long at all. Here, it took take me all day just a little piece. Yes. It cuts them if you keep it sharp. Yes, yeah, so you got to get all these tools back here. Uh, went forward, backward. All these tools back here, you need to file them every winter. Maybe sometimes in the midsummer too. That's what you do in the winter when you're not growing. Is you're taking care of your tools, okay? And you file them and you keep them sharp. When they're sharp, they cut. When they're not sharp, they just mush them over, and then they come back, huh?
2: How do Is it a stone or a file?
1: I use a file. Like, a, you know, I have a, 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 a primary file and then a finishing file I use on them. It doesn't take long, but you don't want to be doing this. See how he's like, he guy got to a too big, and then he's having to go out there with a the standard American hack hoe, I call it. Mm-hmm. I think they call them Dutch hoes, but I guess uh, Dutch, I don't know. But anyways, you have to, here you're standing straight up. Your back can take it here. You're bent over all day long, whack, whack, whack. Yeah. You can maybe last 30 minutes an hour doing that, and then you're, you're done for the day. Okay, and you didn't get much done. So don't let your weeds get out of control. That's a big secret. Buy the right tools. Here's my garden. I got my uh, co- uh, form of collinear hoe. I got my cheap china stirrup hoe there, which I, you know, I I bought before I knew better. And then, and you can see, I'm done weed. Uh, the, only, uh, the only part I haven't weeded and see, oh, I, the reason I did that is because in the, between the rows, you know, see the rows of mustard greens there? I'm using my stirrup hoe between the rows, all right? but I have a little outside edge there that really can't run the stirrup stirrup hoe down, so I'm cutting those off with my uh, collinear hoe. I call them razor blades on a stick. That's basically what they are, razor blades on a stick. Yeah, that's this one here. See this little area here? I can't really get that big, wide stirrup hoe down there, so I'm just... And you always want to... Weed towards your plant. You don't want to strip soil away from your plant because you'll expose the hair roots. And that's a little counterintuitive because you're worried about slicing, you know, not stopping in time and slicing your cash crop. But you just got to get used to it because it's, I'd rather waste a few cash crops just, you know, getting my, my method down than strip soil away from my entire crop because I'm afraid I'm going to cut the cash crop. Because when you, you want to, you're going to, you, you don't want to drag a lot of soil. These tools are made so you're not dragging a lot of soil around. You, the, the stirrup hoe, the soil slides over the hoe and you just cut the weed, right? So you don't want to be dragging a lot of soil but you're going to drag a little bit of soil and the d- soil you do drag, you want to drag it towards the plant and stop short before you cut the plant and not away from the plant like you kind of want to do. I mean, it took me a long time to not be afraid to weed because <laughs> you know, uh, I wasn't very good at it at first but the guy who taught me, Daniel, in that picture said, look, you know, it's okay, I want you to, I, for his thing was, I want you to do it right. So take your time and get it done right. I mean, I, but if you waste a few of my, my plants that I make my living on, you know, I'm always aware I was, anytime I did something wrong, I was probably costing him money and taking food off his table, you know, uh, in, in my learning process, you know. But he was real good and real patient with me. And I wasted a few plants at first, but you know, it got better, and I got better, and I got better. And at first, I was really slow. Because I was so afraid I was going to cut something. But then you get good at it, you get faster. So his thing was first do it right, and then do it faster. It <laughs> this, this one right here? That's a collinear hoe. It's called a half moon hoe, but it's, it's pretty much the same as a, It's made by a different company, and it, I like the collinears better. I, I would trade that in for a collinear, but I bought it already. They're about $50, so they're not cheap. So I use it, you know. Uh, This is a standard American hack hoe, and again, you can see where you had to do a lot of work here, and you're destroying the hair roots, your surface roots of the plant are getting chopped up here. There's minimal disturbance to the surface roots, and actually, when you surface weed like that, you're just skimming the surface, you actually stimulate any surface roots of your cash crop that do get cut. It actually stimulates the roots to go deeper and branch. So you, if you do it early, see, I'm doing it early here. Once this row gets really big, I can't go in there with these tools anymore. It ruins my cash crop. I gotta, you only weed in the early, early, uh, early stages of your cash crop growth. And then they get big and you can't get in there anymore, but that's okay because they're annuals. You're going to be you know, eating them and pulling them out of the ground sooner or later. And, and they're big enough and they'll shade the ground out and the weeds won't grow anymore because there's no sun getting to the ground. That's why plant spacing comes in. Plant spacing is a big part of weed control. If you plant your, spa- your, your plants too far apart, they get sunshine there, you're gonna have weeds while they're getting full grown. Now you're gonna have to go in there and weed while they're big. But if you, plant your, if you do your plant spacing right, you do these, this a couple of times early when they're young and you know, you're getting weeds because the sunshine's coming down, but then, uh, then eventually the plant gets big enough and you don't have the weed anymore. And then the few weeds that do grow, it doesn't really matter because you're going to be tilling that bed up pretty soon anyway. You've already, you know, you're already into the crop and you're, you're getting money out of it and getting food out of it and you're done, you know. So uh, there was something else I was going to talk about that was important. But anyway, we'll move on. So you want to do this and not this. Uh, here, I mean, even this is a little late. See these little weeds Right here? Right here? Right here? That's, they're about, you know, half-inch maybe, quarter-inch, and they're already starting, they're past the white thread stage, so I'm a little late even now. But it's still not, they're not too far gone. They're not so past infant, infant, infant stage that uh, they, I can't kill them, especially if there's a hot day after. You don't want to do this right before it rains. Um, but see, when you get let like this, this is corn, and they got a whole understory of weeds growing under the corn, it's too late. If I, if this was my field, I'd call it a day. I'd, yeah, I'd chop it down and start over. I'd turn it into a cool season crop if I was already past the day. I wouldn't, there's no point in even wasting your effort on that. Okay. Won't those grow? What? The, I mean, the corn there, won't it grow anyways? Or does the weed take all the nutrients? Oh, it takes a lot of it. Yeah. If you pull those out, the corn actually wouldn't have the proper root It's like the wheat and the tares. You don't want to, you, you'll, you'll kill the, the good thing, taking the bad thing out. So you're really past the point of no return here. Get it while they're young. Oh, I know what I was going to say before. When I plant them, I, I, I prepa- That's another thing. I prepare the bed. Like I shallow run the surface till the soil right before I plant, right? to get the. Only when I'm planting seed. If I'm planting transplants, I really don't have to get it that fine because, you know, transplants are going to go in the ground. Seeds are really close to the surface, so you need sort of a fine seed bed. So I have to run the, the tiller just shallowly above the soil. And then Um, I plant right away. I don't wait another week before I plant because if you wait another week, the weeds are going to grow and then you're going to be planting into, they're going to be almost ahead of what, you know, they're going to be germinating and growing ahead of your cash crop, right? So you got to till and prepare your bed and then boom, don't wait more than a day before you plant your cash crop. You direct seed it or either transplant it. You know what I mean by direct seed, transplant? Seed right in the ground versus putting a little plug in the ground? Okay. And then after you do, after you do that, you wait about ten, in my area, and maybe other areas it's a little different, but I know in my area I wait about 10 to 14 days, and then I really have to start, I have to weed again. Because now they're going to be coming up, they're going to be in that thread stage. It takes about 10 days for weeds to start to appear after you've taken care of them once, you know. And then I'm, I weed it one more time. I might have to weed it a second time, 10 to 14 days after that. But usually I don't have to weed more than two times. And by the second time, my annual plant that's growing fast is getting big enough to take over the ground and outcompete the weeds. You understand how that works? Okay, outside of the beds, you know, I have that square, and I have the walkways in between, but outside and in the walkways, uh, you want to leave your mobile walkways, and you want to mow those walkways before that grass gets so tall you can't mow it or it goes to seed. There's an old adage, you know, one year's, one weed seed is seven years more worth of weeds. Isn't that the way it goes? Has anybody ever heard that? on Farmers. Anyway, the point is, get that, keep, get that anything on the border of your garden, keep a, about a 10-foot, maybe a 20-foot swath mowed and the walkways mowed at least before they go, the weeds on the outside go to seed. You don't really have to worry about that. You know, you can have lawn out there or grass is nice, but if you've got weeds out there, Don't worry about getting rid of them. Just keep them mowed and don't let them go to seed. Because if you let them go to seed, they're going to put out a million weed seeds and you're going to have to deal with all those weed seeds. So over the years, as you keep this under control, the weed problem is going to go down and down and down and down. But you've got to be diligent. You see what I'm saying? Keep it mowed. Don't let it go to seed. All that stuff you're not really actively weeding, like clean cultivating with those tools, keeping your border areas mowed is important and not letting it go to seed and your walkways. Uh, mow do not weed the walkways mow before the weeds seed out I just told you that initially uh, water in uh, new transplants okay This is inside the beds, okay? We're talking about outside the border areas and the walkways now. Now, inside the beds where you got your, you know, that's one way of taking care of weeds is mowing. Outside the beds, you just want to mow everything good. Inside the beds, you're going to have to clean cultivate with those special tools, and when you plant that transplant or that line of direct seeded seeds, you want to come in and you want to get one of those uh, water wands, and the really good ones are made by DRAM up in Milwaukee, American made, and they're really good. They're professional grade watering tools, and uh, I can show you mine. I'll bring it in here after lunch. And you want to water. I got a trigger sprayer on it, which they sell too. And I just go along and at, with the first watering is always done by a hose for like the first week. I just water with a hose, right? My garden's small enough I can get away with that. Some of you bigger guys, you're just going to have to do drip tape right from get-go. But I come in and I go boom, 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 and do a squirt on every transplant, right? I don't, I, and I, I do it to the point of runoff and then I stop. I don't want that water going anywhere else because I'm just going to be watering weeds. I want the water to be right on the transplant and that's going to help you with your weeding problem because if you just sit there and throw a sprinkler on it well, you're watering every weed in between that plant. Now you're going to have a weed problem. But if you isolate the initial watering boom 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 and you don't, you don't do this all through this life you just do it initially like the first week until they kick in you know until they take root then you go boom 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 or if you got a direct seeded line you just Drizzle it right on the line. You don't do it. You know, you drizzle each line. You don't do it in between the lines. Okay, and then um, and then you do it a second time, and then you do it a third time. You you always water in three times because that makes sure the water goes deep, and not just sits on the surface. And you encourage deep root growth right when they take off. So. Mhm. I do. I go boom, 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 and then I work my way back. Boom, 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 and then I might get another row in. Boom, 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 and then I might, if I have a long enough one, I might be able to reach that far one. Boom, 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 boom. Let's say I have four rows, or I might have to drag the hose around and do the last row over there. That way, it just depends, you know, if, I don't, if it works out. But I definitely want to do it so I can target every watering on every transplant, and it goes really fast because you're just going. And the point of runoff is really quick in my area. You know, it takes a while for it doesn't take long for it to start running off, and then I stop. And then I come back and I do it a third second time, and then I come back and do it a third time. So the water gets deep in there. Yeah. It's like a Trinity, man. It's like I do everything in threes. You do three times when
2: you're seeding as well? Huh? You do three times when you're seeding
1: as well? Uh yes. On the seed line I water those that line three times. And usually I try to water another line, so the time I've been into that, that's all soaked in. I go down again, and that's all soaked in, I go down, and I do it three times. And it goes really fast. And I can do hundreds of feet of bed really fast. How many days? You do it, did I finish all that? You do it every, uh, not every day, when it needs it. You, when you're trying to germinate seed, transplants are, as, uh, they're, they're, you have to be a little diligent with transplants, but ger, seed germination, you never want to let seed that you've watered once dry out. Because once you water it, you start the process of germination. And if you ever let it dry out, it's not going to germinate. You've got to keep on that every day, you know, unless it rains, you know, and God gives you a gift of rain. Uh, But unless it rains, you're going to have to water it every day until you see it coming up. It's not just germinate until you see it emerge. You know, there's a difference between, you don't really see the seed germinate, but you do see it emerge. Um, So when you see it emerge, then you can maybe start backing off a little bit. Because now it's, if it's going through the top, seeds are really great, man. They always send that tap root down first before they send the top part up. So they're all are you know their their root is way ahead of the top growth, and so by the time you see that top growth, they're pretty much able to get some water on their own now, and that you want to encourage that. You don't want to baby, baby them too much. Yeah. Early in the morning is great. Yeah, I have a whole thing on yeah I have a whole thing on irrigation. I, we're not going to get to it today probably, but. Uh, uh, water, watering, we, you know, that's a whole different topic. Um, but um, I never, you don't want wet leaves if you're watering from overhead. Now, transplanting, it doesn't matter. I water it, you know, right before evening because that way the water stays there and it doesn't evaporate. But if you're trying to water big plants that are already growing, I always use drip tape because I don't like wetting the leaves and having wet leaves through night. If I'm forced to water from overhead, and I have to water for some reason, I have to water from overhead. I always. Try to do it before in my area before three PM. Because after three PM I'm I'm not I'm running out of time where it can dry off before the night sets in. Yeah.
2: So the the transplants you water right down at the at the stem or or wet the leaves?
1: Uh I well those I don't I don't want the wet those transplants, I don't want the leaves wet at night. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do those transplants, but wet water them before 3 p.m. And usually they're transplants, and I try to water them first thing because at 3 p.m. they're already experiencing the heat of the day and they're young, you know, and usually I try to get them watered early in the morning. Now, some of the bigger plants, I can, you know, I got other things to do. I can dawdle around or, you know, busy doing something else. And, uh, you know, I can come in right, you know, by right 2 or 12, and, and it has enough time to dry. But I like to use drip tape, and it saves a lot of work. Watering's a lot of work. So if you can use the drip tape, you're going to save yourself a lot of work. Uh, weed, when the, be- the sprouts are barely visible, we already said that we'll stirrup hoe between the wheel or stirrup hoe between the rows and the collinear around the plant. You know when you see your uh, seed packets, it always says uh, between row spacing and between plant spacing. Well, usually the between row spacing is a little bigger. That's where you use your stirrup hoe or your stirrup hoe and a wheel called a wheel hoe. Okay, They go between plants. The collinears are for those little spaces between plants that the stirrup hoe can't get. You see why you need both of them, okay? Uh, uh, just uh, just cover number five. Weed just prior to a couple of hot, dry days. You don't want to weed right before it's going to rain. That's why it's so great to live in a, gardening in this day and age. Because my opening home page on my computer is always the seven-day weather forecast with the little pictures. I'm like, oop, you know, and I'm always planning my workload by when rain's coming or you know, what's happening. You know, there's certain jobs you do right before rain, You certain jobs you do while it's raining, and you certain jobs you do right after it rains, and then you certain jobs you do like a couple, three days after it dries out a little bit after it rains, okay? Why don't you, why don't you lead just before the rain? Because it has a more tendency to re what you just cut. Uh, okay. And your work is for naught. And your work is for naught. You want to burn those things you just cut up, oh. so there's no chance of them coming back on you. So you got to get them young and you want them to burn up. And, and and the the bigger they are, the more you want a stretch of long, hot days in front of you. Because the bigger they are, the more likely they might reroot on you because you've let them get too big. Yeah? So do you not water them right after you weed? Huh? So you, don't, you try
2: not to water right after you
1: Right, exactly. You have to t- take that into consideration too. Good point. <laughs> wow, I hate bullet points. Uh, don't weed cultivate in a timely manner? Uh, if you wait until the garden starts to look weedy, you've waited too long. Ideally cultivate before the weeds are even visible, the white thread stage. Uh, shallower uh, of the cultivation, the fewer weed seeds exposed to germinate. A lot of people, a lot of people want to go in there with their tiller, because it's easy, and I've seen a lot of old-time farmers do this, and I disagree with it, you know, even though it's a, you know, I have a lot of respect for old-time farmers, but some things they do, I think, you know, I don't know where you learn that. <laughs> because a lot of people, it's easy. Crank up the engine, go through the rows with your tiller. I mean, what could be easier than that, right? But the problem with that is you get too deep and you start exposing a lot of weed seeds that were dormant down deep. And now you've got a bigger weed problem because you've exposed it with a tiller. These tools, I'm telling you, are quick and easy. They're hand tools. You don't get a gasoline engine on them, but it's good work. If you do that collinear your hose, you know, you have to bend over a little bit for the stirrup hose, but the choline you in your hose, you're supposed to, they're made so you weed standing straight up. Now, you can weed all day long stand straight up. I mean, it's, it's therapeutic almost. Collinear. That collinear razor blade on a stick hoe that I showed you. I got, a, I got it. I'll bring it down after lunch. Um, okay, this is another, uh, uh, another number four. Tra- use transplants rather than a direct seed whenever possible. You know what I'm saying there? If, if it's a plant that can be grown in a transplant cell and transplanted, do it. You're not doing it to get a jump on your maturity date. You really don't get a good jump on maturity date because you're having to start over once you plant the transplant. Transplant maturity dates are almost as as long as from the seed to maturity date. So don't think you're gaining anything and shorten in shortening the time. You don't get to because it takes you 4 weeks to grow a transplant, you don't get to take that 4 weeks off of the maturity date. You understand? You just count I usually maybe you might save a week But I usually don't count on that. I usually do my plans like it's going to harvest on the maturity date even though it's a transplant and it's been growing for four weeks already. You know what I'm saying? it's not, it doesn't, when you
2: plant it it's not like the fifth week you're back to
1: Back to square one. But that's okay because you're not, you're not growing transplants in order to get a jump on your maturity date. You're growing transplant to get a jump on the weeds. Because it's a lot harder to weed when you direct seed because the seed and the weeds kind of come up together, but if you've got a nice little row of transplants there, man, you can see that. You can weed up close to them, and you keep them. You can keep it weeded a lot better. And that's why you grow. You want to plant things on transplants. Another reason is a transplant is a lot stronger and doesn't get eaten by insects and everything else when it's mature. It's got a little maturity on it. If you know from zero from emergence to you know when it four, you know six inches tall, that's when it's most susceptible. You'd rather grow that indoors while you've got some control over your insect population than have that being, going on outdoors. Now, some things that grow really fast, you can plant them direct seed, like radishes, right? Or arugula. I don't, I don't transplant arugula or radishes. I grow them from... Some things uh, don't like to have their roots messed with, like beans. You can't really... Trans, you've got to direct seed beans, okay? But most everything else, corn, I even know people that transplant corn to get, in order to get early corn in. Yeah, but uh, mostly of the time you do direct seed corn, yeah. Uh, what's the other one? Use transplant, okay. Uh, number five, strategic watering when the beds are first planted. That's the, using the trigger sprayer. Uh, if the battle is lost, at least mow before you, they go to seed. So if you got, you're out there and you've just totally botched it and you are not been disciplined enough and don't, you know, don't give up, but just at least if you're going to keep on, if you're not going to give up for the entirety, Don't let it go to seed if you've gotten past it. Just keep it mowed. You never want to let your garden go to seed once you've staked out your garden. At least keep it mowed, you know what I mean? And then you can come back and not have to fight the same weeds or seven times more of the weeds you fought the first time. Okay, do you understand that? And then what you were talking
2: about before, like
1: putting that black plastic on. Solarizing it? I never do that. I mean, I only do that if I have a fungal disease or a soil disease. I never do it really for weeds, but people do do it for weeds if they have a real problem. Like that Bermuda grass, you know, if you've got a real bad Bermuda grass problem, maybe you take a year just solarizing it before you even do the garden. Because it's a really nauseous grass. I mean, it's hard to get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> but we do it. And that, that garden I showed you at that church, that's all they had is Bermuda grass. And I, I was able to fight it and, you know, still make money and enjoy myself. Uh, cover crop. You, uh, you can under-sow in your beds or in your walkways uh, or in your fallow fields. So uh, if you've got a weed problem and you're really concerned about it, sow an understory crop of a cover crop, like a low-growing, something that doesn't compete in height, like a, what is that, Dutch clover or white clover is a low-growing clover. It doesn't get but maybe two or three inches tall. You, you can have a living mulch on top uh, and have taller plants growing above it. It's a little extra work, I don't ever do it, but I've seen guys who do it and they, it looks really promising. I like it, so that's why I added it. Uh, uh, but again, you're like, okay, this looks really good, but how much more time is it going to take? And you know, you're always weighing that, you know, that time factor. Because there's only so many hours in a day. Row spacing governed by weeding tools. Okay, that's a good point. And uh, uh, plant spacing should allow maximum plant growth and minimum weed growth. Plant spacing is so important. now. You know, it depends on what book you look at how far apart you're supposed to plan them in the row and how far you know every book there's no one person that says you got to do it this way there's all these different ideas. If you're a tractor farmer, you got to do it totally different than a, a, hand, you know, a, a tiller farmer, you know, because your equipment is set up to do certain spacings. You know, you're, you're obligated to like 30-inch spacings or 24-inch spacings because that's all your equipment will do if you're doing automated seeding, you know, by pulling something behind the tractor. But if you're a hand farmer, I mean, you can get those tighter, but I never get them tighter than my smallest stirrup hoe. They make a three-and-a-half-inch stirrup hoe. So my spacing, I, I, I showed you a thing on my spacing, is about seven inches. Because when I try a six-inch spacing, I couldn't even get a three-and-a-half stirrup hoe down there for very long and not feel like I was getting too close to the plants, you know. You want to get close to the plants, but I felt it was just a little uncomfortable for me. So I went to, a, you know, a, in a four-foot bed, I went to a, a maximum of six-row spacing. It gives me seven inches between each row. And I, and I don't care what the seed packet says. My minimum spacing is going to be seven inches because that's what my weeding tool allows me to do. Okay? I don't care what those people at the, the, you know, that make those big charts say, and they're good charts. But bottom line, I'm not planting a row any closer than my stirrup hole will allow me to get in. Okay? Uh, It's crucial uh, crucial to weed management efficiency is uh, beds have to be straight. You know, wavy bed, or th- th- these people do it they're, see they're using a collinear hoe, see how they're on the side, this guy's bent over, this lady's d- doing it right. See how she's standing up? I don't know what this guy's probably looking at something, but you want to have this posture when you're weeding with those uh, razor blades on a stick called a collinear hoe, and, uh, and uh, oh, what was I don't know what I was gonna say, uh, but uh, yeah, oh thank you, the uh, straight beds, um, it's because when you have, when you're not having to make, if, if this was all wavy, you know, and the beds were all wavy and they went in this way and out this way in the hourglass, you'd have to be constantly making adjustments for that different spacing, for that different uh, angle, and, and it would slow you down. When everything's straight, it adds to your efficiency because you're doing the same motion over and, over and over and over and over and you get fast at it and you're not having to make all these little corrections because it got skinny here and it got fat here, or a bit took a left here or it took a right there, you know. Or left, right, okay. So, well, I always string my beds. The sisal. Yeah, with the natural. I, well, I use uh, plastic on that because I don't want to change it every time. I want to have something that'll stick around for a long reuse time. It. Yeah, I reuse that plastic one. Now, the the, the the pole beans I use the natural fiber because I, I can just chop that up and leave it in the dirt and till it in. Yep. Yeah. What? Plastic string. Yeah, plastic string. I can put a tomato stake in there and, and I pull it tight. So you got to put it in a little deep and uh, string it up, and I make nice straight beds, and, uh, and you get good at that. And a lot of times I'll put little markers when I do my uh, row seeder, and I'll, so I'll hit the marker again, and I'll use a measuring tape and put like, so it's sort of hard to get a straight line if you're aiming at that spot down there, or you're trying to just work the edge. It's, uh, sometimes I'll measure like six inches in, and put a little stick that I can run over and you know, not have to worry about, and I'll just aim for the next stick, and that'll help me with the straighter rows. This is probably done by a tractor, so it's a lot easier when you have a tractor, but you, know, you can get them straight with you doing it with hand tools. Uh, transplants and direct seeds done in straight rows. Uh, rows spacing strictly equidistant and based on the width of your stirrup hoe. We already went over that. Space the row as tight to the hoe as comfortable. Allow for a six-inch curve. These are the curves between your walkway and your first plant. And... Uh, Sometimes, you know, I, I cheat on that a little bit. Uh, get a little, huh? Here's the curb between the grass, well, there should be a grass walkway here, and my bet it's a grass, and your first plant. And then it grows, and your cr- curb shrinks because your plant's growing out that way. But you, you know, you want to have a little bit of a curb that you can, you know, that you can uh, keep the grass from mingling with the plant. I, I like it. I mean, some people don't worry about it, but. This grass on the walkway can get pretty long because you're not going to cut it because it's in in with the with your plant, you know, kind of thing. So, I like to keep this kind of weeded right here. And I can so I'm able to cut this grass before it gets into my crop and I don't want to cut it and it gets tall. Mm-hmm. What? We usually have to hold the curb then a I hoe the curb with yeah. a stirrup hoe. And then when it gets too tight, I hoe with a collinear hoe. More vantage. This is called clean cultivation. This is what they call clean cultivation. Uh, That's a technical term for it. Early shallow cultivation stimulates surface uh, hair roots. Remember I was telling you about that. They branch out, they grow down. So actually, when you do it early, now if you do it late, it doesn't, it hurts them. But if you do it early, while they're still growing those roots, those little hair roots, because hair roots are what really feed the plant. Once a root gets really big and thick, it's just a conduit now. It's not really taken in, you know, once it gets kind of woody and stemmy, all your feeding goes on the little white hair roots. So you really want to promote hair root growth because that's for a healthier plant. And this actually, when it's done early, not late, when it's done early, will actually stimulate hair root growth and rootlet growth. Uh, Also keep the surface, okay, another thing you get, especially in the south here, when we got a lot of clay soils, maybe not in Florida, but in in Georgia, we have a lot of clays. And uh, what you'll have happen is you'll get a hard rain, and then uh, the next day the sun will come out and, and, and it'll get crusty. You'll get this surface crust. Okay, at first I thought, well, that's pretty good because now all the weeds aren't going to germinate. But then I was reading about it, and we and this other farmer were having a discussion about this, and the more we read about it, we said, let's, let's dig into this because I'm thinking it's good, but then again something tells me it's not good. Well, sure enough, it was bad because, remember, the soil needs to breathe. You've got air coming into the soil at night and air going out of the soil in the day, coming in, going out, coming in, going out, and you need that exchange happening because your roots need that nitrogen that the air provides and fixing that nitrogen. So when it's crusted, you're not getting that exchange. So doing this uh, shallow cultivation also helps break up any crusting, and you're going to get crusting. I mean, you know, unless you have really good soil structure, you're going to get crusting, because what happens is a big old raindrop comes down and goes pow, and it just disintegrates uh, the clay into a lot of little fine pieces. And then some of the clay washes off, but some of the clay just settles and sort of makes a film and then it dries out and you got crusting. Okay, here's uh, I borrowed some of these slides from somebody else. Uh, that's the white thread stage when you need to start weeding. See, you can barely see it. If, if, you, uh, if you see weeds, it's probably too late. Okay. Cultivate at this stage like that guy was doing with his wheel hoe. Uh, again, another thing is, always overseed, here's a, uh, I don't know what this is, it looks like maybe like, uh, no, it doesn't matter but anyways that's their cash crop there right? and look they skimped out on their, when they weeded it and now they don't get a good stand well part of your weed control is making sure you have a good stand that gets big and starts shading out the ground if you don't have a good stand you got a lot of you know, sunlight spaces there so you really want to keep everything watered evenly and have it all come up together and all grow at the same time so you have a good thick stand something coming like this you got a big old bare spot here well that's always going to be a weeding problem you know what I mean? Because that little plant there ain't going to cover all the way over here. You know what I'm saying? So don't get cheap and try to, you know, I always overseed. Buy the extra seed and overseed. Now, you don't want to go crazy because that can be a problem too. But you do want to, you know, I always try to make sure I have a good stand or whatever. I hate gaps. What you do? Huh? Put some little in there? No, really, once you get a gap, it's too late to correct. I mean, you just got to live with it. You know, it's just extra work. <laughs> All right, and here's another thing of when people skimped out. And uh, here they did three seeds per foot, and here they did six seeds per foot. And you can see the weed control is a lot better because the density is a little more. You don't want to get too tight because then you're going to have to thin. You don't get a good mature crop. You're going to have it takes time to thin, so you don't want to get it so tight that your thinning becomes a nightmare. But you do want to get it tight enough so you get a good stand. Okay, and you maybe have to thin a little bit, but that's okay. You know, you can handle a little thinning. Because time is money. Value your time. I'm trying to give you a fit. I mean, I'm not, this is not a class for the person who wants to just go out in the backyard. Even if you're just a backyard farmer, do it like the guys who make money at it, and you'll have a lot more fun. I mean, you'll have a lot more fun because you're not spending all your time out in the garden. You've got time to do something else. What is that? I don't know what that is. Uh, this is my garden at home. Okay, these are natural. Some parts of weed control we can get into are natural, but clean cultivation is my thing. Now, there's some plants like tomatoes and everything in the nightshade family, except for potatoes. I don't weed potatoes because you're really hilling them. You're actually weeding them with, a, with your, your hilling process. But, uh, potatoes, tomatoes, and eggplants, because they're in so long and they don't have a real thick foliage and sunlight gets through, I actually uh, I, I use uh, natural mulch called hay, which cost me about $4 and I can cover about 10 feet. You can't skip out. You got to have a good thick matting. And a lot of times, you know how when you peel these off, they come out in slabs? And I, yeah, they come out in slabs. A lot of times what I've been doing, and I learned this from a, an old farmer, and uh, instead of like sitting there and shaking it out and having to breathe in all that dust, and taking all that time, what I do is I'll just take a slab and basically tile this with every square and just make, make them close together, you know. And there's a nice thick mat, and it's not too thick, and it works really well. I like that. Uh, I have to sort of improvise around the circles, but, you know, but I can tile it most what do you of it. cut
2: it with? Hmm? What do you cut
1: it with? Oh, it just peels off. I mean, the way the baler does it, it, it just sort of peels off naturally in slabs. Uh, the straw, okay, the difference between straw and hay. Everybody know the difference between straw and hay? No. What's the difference? Straw has more weeds in. Reverse. Hey. All right, next one. <laughs> huh? Straw is just a that's it, that's what I was looking for. Straw. <laughs> you got it reversed. Straw, uh, hay has more weeds in it. Hay is used for feed. I don't believe that. Huh?
2: Good hay done
1: there. Good okay, good. maybe you can get some hay without weeds. All right, I want to get in an argument, you know. <laughs> if you get hay without weeds, use the hay yeah. because it's got, more for, it's got more nutrition in it. Yeah, okay, right. okay. I, I'm a big believer. It's just hard for me to get hay without a bunch of weeds and I'd rather just use straw that doesn't, doesn't have a lot of weeds because it's just the stalk. Hay is the same plant except they leave the, the green head on it to feed the animals because that's where all the nutrition is up there in that green head. And it's a young version of what the straw is. So basically, straw is just hay that has been degrained. that's right. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, we... Huh? Decapitated. Decapitated. I mean, hay is what usually you feed horses and cows. It's usually alfalfa or grown grass. Yeah, use it as feed. Hay
1: is used for feed, whereas straw is used for for bedding material.
2: Yeah, and straw, it all comes from wheat. It's just
1: the... the Okay, wheat wheat straw, yeah. and what else I was going to say about hay and straw. Uh, if you, uh, Okay, talking about using hay. It is more nutritious, And but the, if you can get hay, they say that if you can get the third cutting, not the first cutting, because the first cutting is going to have the wheat and the tares in it, right? But if you can get the second cutting, because it'll grow again, the farmers will harvest again, it'll grow a third time, farmers will harvest again. You can get like three harvests out of a good crop of of uh, of of wheat straw right or wheat hay or hay right whatever it is, and and but if you can get the second or third cutting you're gonna have less weeds less weeds less weeds, and it's more tender, that too, um so here I put that second or third cutting there. Pros to organic mulches: a weeds prevention if you put it on thick enough. Some people don't put it on thick enough and the weeds grow right through it because the sunlight grows through it. Okay? You've got to put it on thick enough. Uh, build soil when it's tilled in. Usually straw is pretty good because it's pretty nutritionally void. All, it do, all you're doing is adding carbon and sometimes that's a good thing because m- my soil test came back and it said no more organic matter. you got too much potassium, right? So I was like, well, what, can I till in my straw? They said, yeah, straw is okay because there's really nothing in straw except for carbon. Okay. Um, so you can till it in, and, and soil, some soil diseases are reduced by it. I have one that I, I think it encourages, but I'm still wondering about that. Uh, the cons are it costs $4 a bale. Uh, it involves labor to install it, uh, but everything does. It has, sometimes it can, uh, if it's hay or something, sometimes it can uh, increase your calcium, uh, potassium potential. If you already have enough potassium, it, it, you might not want to be tilling it in. Sometimes I take this off and store it and use it in my compost. Uh, and if, and also, when you put the straw on, you got to be very careful. You're not putting it on too early, because when I do this, I plant my tomatoes, and I don't put it. I just weed them for a while, okay? Because uh, usually I'm w- hoping the soil warms up some. Because if I sat there and slapped the straw down immediately, and the soil's still like 60 degrees or less, my, it's going to insulate that coolness, and the sun's not going to be able to warm it up. Okay, so I want to wait a little bit and let the soil warm up. And I got a little thermometer I put in the soil. When it gets up around 65 and it's consistent, you know, in the early morning when it's the coolest. Uh, and I will always like to uh, straw in the heat of the day so I can trap some of that heat before I put a blanket on it and, don't, and it doesn't get heat anymore. And, um, and so that's another thing you have to be aware of when you put uh, mulches over is uh, timing it with your soil temperature.
2: Huh?
1: That's another pro, yes. Did I, did I miss it or was it on there? It wasn't on there? It does retain the moisture in the soil. i, I got to put that on there. Uh, Weed management. do you have these synthetic mulches? Do you use that for tomatoes? The- all, my, all my nightshades that are in there for the whole summer, nightshades are like tomatoes, but, uh, eggplant, and peppers. What does that mean? Uh, it's just a, a family of plants. Families are, uh, plants are grouped by their flower. Flower is the sex organ, you always, uh, you say, well, why is a potato and a tomato in the same family? And that's a totally different fruit. That, that's not, well, if you look at it, the leaves are pretty similar, but that's not why they group them in the same family. The reason they group them in the same family is because they have similar flowers, and the flower is, and there's all kinds of different ways, you know, different flowers for plants, and uh, they always group the families according to the flower, which is a, a plant's sex organ.
2: Okay.
1: Huh? Uh huh. No, no, no. They're, it, it's part of the classification of a, of a plant. You know, like the taxon, the taxonomy. You know, there's certain plants in the in the, in the, the common name is nightshade, but the, the you know the Latin name is Solanacea, the Solanacea family. It had there's a lot of plants in that family. A few of them are edible, like tomatoes, eggplant, uh, potatoes, and um, the other one. Hmm? Hmm? Okay, but well that's another class. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, plastic. A lot of people go with plastic, but your uh, pros are it's good at weed prevention. Uh, can help soil temperatures. You can warm up the soil with black plastic. You can keep the soil from getting warm with white plastic. And sometimes you can spur fruit growth with colored plastic, like red plastic, they say, spurs t- tomatoes to produce more, right? So it does have that, it has a, you, so you can sort of manipulate soil temperature with plastic a little better, uh, or you have more options, I should say. Total irrigation control, uh, you're going to have to run some drip tape under that plastic, because if you've got plastic on there, then it's not going to get rainfall. So it's you watering only, okay? I don't like to use black plastic for that reason, but they say it's a lot more efficient. Uh, for the farmer trying to make a living. I haven't gone that way yet, but I've heard farmers say, hey, I made a lot more money once I started using plastic. But, uh, because it, you, get, you, know, you just don't have to contend with as many weeds, even with the clean cultivation. Uh, soil moisture is retained. Nutrient leaching is reduced because you're not having rainfall on it all the time. You're controlling the irrigation. So that's one good thing. The cons are it costs a lot more in straw. Uh, it still requires installation labor, so you're not saving anything there. Removal labor, I mean, you don't just till this stuff in. You got to take it off and it doesn't get used again. Then you got to figure out, you know, go get, take it to a dumpster or something get rid of it. So it's a lot of plastic being so used. They, burn it. So they do? I mean, getting rid of it or storing it, and it really only lasts one time. Yeah. Uh, Trash or storage, uh, cost of special irrigation setup, no free rain. Uh, retard soil air exchange, remember I was talking about that air exchange but they still use them. You can get some landscape fabric, but it costs a lot more money that actually breathes and actually lets water through. But you're paying lots of money for that. If you've got a small garden I guess you can afford it. But you know, you might want to do that. Uh, crops uh, conducive to mulching, uh, crops that grow slow, that you're going to have to always contend with weeds. Crops that are slow to yield, uh, slow to do, like peppers are really slow. Take forever to get a pepper, right? Slow to do and not develop an effective canopy. So you're, you know, you don't want to be, uh, that's, these are things that are conducive to mulching and the nightshade family falls into these parameters. Uh, or you have perennials where you're not going to cut them down at the end of the growing season. You're going to leave them there year after year after year. Well, then plastic mulching might make a lot of sense. Then uh, I put the strawberries are perennials. Melons, uh, I, if I, I don't grow melons, but if I did, I'd, use, I'd probably use some type of mulch on them. Either natural or synthetic. So
2: how do you get the seeds in the plastic?
1: Cut a hole. You yeah. seed before. You, well, if you're doing direct seed, you got to seed before you put the plastic. Well, that's yeah. not true. You, can. you can't. You have to transplant. You have to cut. Yeah. To cut. And do transplants. You can't really direct seed with plastic. That's what I do. You know, when, I don't do it, so I don't I, I know don't, the answer. Never, I, you know, I had to kind of figure that one out on the fly. <laughs> we also have
2: biodegradable plastics available now. Yes. So, that's true and too. There is, there's mechanical ways of laying it. So at least there,
1: if you have a tractor, there's a tool that you can actually. The garden re- tractor works. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen uh, the BCS has a plastic laying tool yeah. that goes with it. Never had it. I mean, you know, there's a lot. I mean, I'm giving you the way I skin the cat. There's probably other ways to skin this cat, you know, uh, but I can only talk about what I know. But I don't know everything, so you're right. Um, I'm just trying to get you a little started, that's all, you know. Uh, All right, other methods, uh, you can desod or solarize those rapid repair grasses, or you can desod it. I've heard cornmeal works as an herbicide, never tried it, but that's, yeah, I've heard it works as an herbicide. Wood chips, uh, back to Eden video, Uh, it's not as easy as that guy makes it out to be. Um, uh, So, I know a lot of people have seen that video, but It's just not that easy. Coleman always says, "Cultivation is a shallow stirring of the surface soil in order to cut off small weeds and prevent the appearance of new ones." Weeding takes place after the weeds have already been established. So you want to be a cultivator of the soil and not a weeder. If you if you're bending down having to pull weeds, you've waited too long. You want to cut them when they're really, 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 really really young. And that's the end of the weed presentation.
2: This media was produced by
0: Audioverse. For the NAD Health Summit, if you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit
1: www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you
0: would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.